Welcome to the Sports Grad Podcast, where we empower you with the answers to your burning questions to accelerate your career into the sports industry. We are your hosts, Melbourne-based sports administrators, Ruben Williams and Ryan Walker. Join us as we share unique and personal examples as well as relatable information and deliver them to you in bite-sized, fluff-free episodes. Want to swipe our signature framework to add awesome experience to your resume? Download our free ebook, Four Steps to Create Outstanding Work Experience in Sport, at sportsgrad.com.au. Now sit back, relax, enjoy the show, and don't forget to hit subscribe so you don't miss any of our latest episodes released every Tuesday and Thursday. Rubes, one of my favourite events at the Olympic Games is the marathon. And the thing is with the marathon, everyone's looking to shave off milliseconds off, off their time. And the same thing relates to, to my shaving routine. I'm looking to get the most precise shave that I possibly can. And I've started using Dollar Shave Club's executive razors, which delivers me the most precise shave I possibly can. Now, for a limited time, new members, listeners from the podcast, can get their executive razor with a tube of Dr. Cover Shave Butter for only $15. All Dollar Shave Club products are great for both men and women. Today, go to www.dollarshaveclub.com slash sportsgrad to get your first starter set for just $15 and then $10 off your second delivery. For more details, follow that link or check out our show notes. Welcome to the Sports Grad Podcast, your bite-sized guide to enter the sports industry. Today, we're talking about how to become a sports lawyer for the Olympics. And joining me today is none other than the curious Ryan Walker. Ryan, how are you? Fantastic, Rubes. Curious is a fantastic word as well. So thank you for that, uh, that adjective um, tonight. So yeah, how are you going? I'm very well. We uh, just got stuck into stage four of lockdown in Melbourne, so inside a lot, out for one hour a day. But um, very excited to uh, be crossing live to uh, Switzerland tonight to interview our very special guest from the International Olympic Committee. Yeah, it's a, it's a huge cross. Uh, as I as I said, I think last episode we are an, we are an international podcast. Listeners all around the world, <laughs> so very happy to be to be switching over to Switzerland. Who have we? Uh, who have we got on tonight? Yeah, so today we are joined by none other than Garth Town, who is speaking us to us from Lausanne in Switzerland at Olympic House, the headquarters of the International Olympic Committee. Garth comes from the equally impressive Victorian country town of Ballyang before he departed to study law at Deakin University and Melbourne University. Garth has held roles working as an in-house lawyer as well as for a sports law firm that allowed him to deal with all the major sports federations within Australia. In March of 2018, he then packed up his bags and moved his life to Lausanne, Switzerland, where he's been practicing his French whilst working as a commercial counsel for none other than the International Olympic Committee. Garth, welcome to the SportsGrad podcast. Thanks so much to you both. Thanks for having me. Garth, it's it's quite a, a jump from Ballyang to Lausanne. It's it's quite the journey. It really is. I still um still when I'm coming into work each day, think back to growing up in a small country town of Ballyang with uh, a primary school class size of one person. I was the only one in my class. We had thirteen kids in the school. Um, and yeah, and and then to think ahead to you know flash forward thirty odd years later and um. You're sitting here on the other side of the world, French-speaking part of Switzerland, working for uh, what I'd say is one of the 
you know, largest sporting federations in the world. So yeah, I still um have to have to think about it long and hard as to the journey. It's been quite staggering. Mm. You mentioned it is one of the most renowned uh, sporting bodies in the world, world uh, for good reason, of course. Um, we had a quick chat last week just to kind of touch base and, and check in on a few things. And, and during that, you uh, very kindly gave me a, a nice little virtual tour of the uh, Olympic House where you got the, got the chance to, uh, to showcase your French, where you delivered a nice little bonjour to the uh, president who just happened to be walking past at the time. <laughs> Yeah, it was it was nice to uh, to show you around. We've got a, a really phenomenal headquarters here, um, and at the moment um, I'm sitting in those headquarters as we speak. But it's a bit empty, I guess, in these COVID times. Um, at the moment, IOC is back up to fifty percent of staff at any one time that can be in the building. But um, and hopefully sooner rather than later, we'll get back to having a, a full Olympic house because it is really a beautiful, collaborative environment to work within. And I do hope one day you both get a chance to come across and I can show you around in person. Absolutely, that would that would be fantastic. We might have to start organising sports grad tours, Ryan. Yeah, I think we 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 mentioned a few weeks ago um, something around a cycling tour of some some description. Rose, we won't go into that because <laughs> we've got quite the guests on today. But yes, I'm, I, I'm all for that. Get the tour to happen. I, I just want the t-shirt. Um, help to wear yeah. across the lake so you guys can give some cycling in and oh. and see Olympic House at the same time. Perfect. I have climbed up to Hebs once before, so it'd be good to go back there. <laughs> anyway, so Garth, you're currently living the dream working at the Olympics, but I'm sure it's hard to kind of envision that you get to this point when you're starting out as a student. What were you like as a student? Yeah, I think, um, you know, I'd come through year 12 and like many people, had worked hard, put my head down to try and get a reasonable TER, as it was known at the time. I don't know if it's evolved since then. Um, to give myself a chance to, to study law. Um, and from there, I think coming from a boarding school environment in year 12 to, to working really hard to then going into living on a residence at university, um, I probably took that sort of freedom uh, for granted and and, um, and went through the motions a bit when it came to the study side of things. So certainly um, early days, I, I probably had too much fun, but I think certainly in the, in the back half of the degree or the double degree I was doing, um, I did straighten up. I needed to I clearly recognise that um, I needed to make sure I was getting some reasonable marks to give myself an opportunity to become employable at the end of it all. So um, in those final couple of years, I did sort of work a lot harder. Um, that sort of coincided as well, I think, in terms of um, getting back into organised sport, which um, created, I suppose, a bit more routine in my life and um, allowed me to, you know, keep sort of, reasonably fit and healthy along along the way um and in my final year of of work in university i um i did both i i studied full-time and i worked full-time at a local law firm and that opportunity then um turned into a chance to to work with that firm full-time and do um, what was called articles at the time so i could become a bit as a lawyer and, and practice as a lawyer with that firm which was in geelong it was called Coulter roach very nice I like how you mentioned the importance of playing sport at the same time. I think uh, a lot of students kind of put their, um, even their social sporting uh, careers on the side to focus on their studies without realizing the benefits of playing sport at the same time. So I like that you highlighted that as well. Yeah, it's just um, a great. I mean, I think it's going back to that just very quickly. I mean, it's a, it's a really mm-hmm. great outlet to keep yourself balanced. And I think as you go through and you look at people, particularly in high school, 
people that are high achievers, they're generally doing a lot. I mean, particularly at my school, I always looked around and the people that were excelling in the classroom were generally quite creative. They were doing arts or music and they were doing sport as well. And you sat back and at times you'd think, well, how do they fit it all in? But I think the fact that you can fit it all in or you do try to fit it all in, it forces you to be organized. And that's one of the really important traits, I think, as you're trying to juggle study is um, is maintaining some sort of perspective and balance in your life. Mm, 100%. And then it gives you a really great avenue to start building experience because you've got the connections already there in the team that you're playing with. You'll probably know the president. It becomes much easier to tap him on the shoulder to say, hey, is there an opportunity to, to volunteer in some way, shape or form? Indeed. Indeed. Uh, so, Garth, sports law is not a very clear-cut pathway. You know, you, you tr- traditionally come out as a registered lawyer and go into practicing law. Sports law is becoming more recognized, but still not entirely clear-cut. So, what, what are the opportunities that exist within it? Yeah, it's a really interesting one. Like you say, you sort of you come out of, um, of university and you've generally got a generalist sort of commercial sort of law degree. Um, and the type of lawyer you become really is dependent on the, the firm that you, that you go to. And the way that graduate programs are structured, the firms have a lot of different practice groups and they'll rotate you through. So you get a taste of, of what you like, whether you go in for three months or four months and do property law, litigation, commercial law. Um, and at the end of it, um, hopefully it matches up that where you want to be and what your interest is, is where the firm needs someone and you can get placed in that area. But there's a, there's a certain amount of luck in, involved in terms of being placed in an area of law that sort of suits itself to be um, to, to allow you to go on to be a sports lawyer. Um, and, and to be honest, even if you do place in an area that's not quite common, if you have a goal to get there, there are things that you can do that I'm sure we'll talk about a bit later on. But um, I suppose when I joined, I was lucky enough that I joined a, a firm in a commercial group, which is a skill set that's very transferable to becoming a, a sports lawyer, so to speak. Um, and I joined a firm as well that at that time and still I think is um, had practiced, was acting for the Geelong Football Club. And so I was doing, you know, 5 to 10% of my work was doing stuff on behalf of the footy club. Um, and that's where I first got a taste and thought, you know what, that's a really that's a really key area and I value that and I really rate doing that sort of work day to day, but it's only taking up a really small fraction of my day, right? So how could I, um, how could I do that full time? Are there people out there who do this as a career? And that's what sort of led me on a journey through that first taste to understand, okay, well, how do you become a sports lawyer? What does it all mean? Um, and there's certain things that I did. I mean, certainly pretty early on, was recommended to join, I suppose, a, uh, an association called the Australian New Zealand Sports Law Association, um, which is a bunch of people um, who either are sports lawyers or want to be sports lawyers. There'd be 400, 500 members across Australia and New Zealand. They regularly catch up and they talk about, you know, issues around around sports law. So, it, it's yeah, it's one of those things that I suppose when I first started out I, in high school, it wasn't like I said, I want to be a sports lawyer. Um, I wanted to study law. I, I, I thought I'd, I'd enjoy that. Um, I then did when I started practicing it. And then from there, I suppose the opportunity around sports law opened itself up or at least was something that you could achieve if you, if you, if you did the right thing. You mentioned joining the Australian and New Zealand Sports Law Association. What were some of the other experiences that you created for yourself that were specific to sport? Yeah, I think um, I, I talked to different people who had been in the area and who had sort of done quite well. Um, and their common feedback um, to me was you've got some, you're getting a good opportunity, you know, at that early age to do some sports law work in a professional capacity, but there are other things you can be doing 
to um to really broaden your horizons and your understanding of the of the industry and the sector and so things like you know volunteering um with different sports organizations um to be on their tribunals i mean there's obviously a myriad of organizations out there that um because of disciplinary issues have to run a weekly tribunal so i sort of signed up and i would regularly attend on a tuesday or thursday night the basketball geelong tribunal and so that allowed me to you know obviously it was a valuable set of experience for for me to to work with some people who have been around the, the traps for a long time and, and understand what went on and how from an operational perspective you know some of these things are actually um dealt with um it's valuable for the organization who are always obviously crying out for for help and for people to to come along and support and assist them um but what it meant was that by the time i got to a point of you know getting my cv together to to apply to where i ended up to to practice sports law in australia um I could supplement the professional experience I've had in terms of the, the work that I was doing as a lawyer um, f- with the firm and, and for the footy club with some of those other things around volunteering. Um, so, you know, being on a disciplinary tribunal, being a, a local um, a board member of a local footy club or a cricket club um, to get, your, get an understanding of, you know, how, how does governance work on the ground? You know, how are decisions made? Things like that. I just think that that really created i think a a cv that had a lot more in it um i wasn't just someone who had some experience who'd responded to an advertisement and said look i like sport i'm a lawyer i want to do that it was i like sport i'm a lawyer but i do want to get involved um and i have got involved in the community and i am doing all these other things but i I think as well you know further study can, can can certainly also help people supplement um you know the lack of experience they might have in a professional capacity um as well so garth a lot of people talk about volunteering but can you share a deeper insight into your attitudes towards volunteerism and creating new opportunities for yourself yeah sure so i think um to get to go alongside some of the professional experience you might have a really useful way to to round out um your cv and to give yourself um a greater breadth of experiences obviously through volunteering um, and on the sports law side, I think more commonly than not, um, the opportunity to volunteer is probably related to, um, to disciplinary issues. There's a lot of local football clubs, a lot of local, you know, basketball clubs out there that, and, and associations out there that have to run one night a week, um, these disciplinary processes. Um, and there's generally a bit of a legal bent because it's involving interpretation of rules, etc. So, um, I think, you know, it's obviously valuable for, for the individual to, to, to get some further experience. And for me, starting out in Geelong, being on the Football Geelong Tribunal and the, and the Basketball um, basketball Geelong Tribunal, it meant that I could go along and get a really clear understanding of, you know, how decisions were made, how people went through um, the process of applying the rules, how people arrived at, um, at a section that was, you know, fair and reasonable. Um, and... You know, it's easy to, to read about it and to study the theory in terms of starting out as a, as a lawyer, but to, to put yourself in the shoes of someone who has to make a decision about whether someone gets suspended and misses a final, you know, you can't, you can't teach that. You need to live through it. And so um, starting out, you know, I really would urge anyone out there interested in getting in sports law um, to go and to try and support, you know, your local sports associations and clubs whether it be through a disciplinary tribunal process or, or equally um, as a board member. Um, you know, a lot of boards in terms of diversity and skill set need to have someone with some form of legal experience. 
Um, and so there are great opportunities out there to, to, to get involved and to, to supplement the experience you might have had, you know, in the office with some, you know, really real-life experience on the ground. I believe you had a significant sliding doors moment that led to your career in sport, which was literally a sliding doors moment because it happened in an elevator. Do you mind sharing uh, the backstory to this and where it led you to? Yeah, sure. So I think before I get to that, I mean, when I first realized that there was this opportunity to do sports law full time, I think I started this journey where I just tried to understand and learn from everyone what they did to to do what what they did to get to where they got to. Um, and I think in my head, I was trying to look for this formula to understand, okay, do I need to do this certificate or this, you know, master's degree or, or have this certain experience on my CV to, to open up an opportunity? And so I was sort of linking up and talking to all these different people in the industry through connections that I'd made through Ansler and the like. Um, and I remember one day talking to Adrian Anderson, who was at the time the um, football operations um, director at the AFL. And I was sort of saying to him, you know, he, his background was as a lawyer um, and a very good defamation lawyer. He's now back at the um, Victorian Bar. But so I said to him, how did you get to where you got to? And he was very good to me with his time. But he basically said, look, there's not one thing that I did or didn't do that led me to get here. He just said, all I can tell you, and I'm obviously summarizing it all, but all I can tell you is to really focus on what you're doing in terms of your day-to-day and do it well. Do it to the best of your ability every time because in his mind, he obviously was working um, as a lawyer. He did some work for the AFL Players Association. Um, Demetrio was at the time the CEO. He goes across the AFL and then sort of um, Adrian gets plucked into this role um, in footy ops. So that led me to think, okay, well, look, that's obviously something really valuable and I need to focus like although I've got this longer-term ambition and goal to try and get into sports law, I obviously need to keep doing what I'm doing well. Because at the end of the day, that's what I'm judged on in terms of my performance and output at that time. So make sure you're doing your daily job well and have this side ambition that I can keep plugging away on. So I I was doing that. Um, I was doing further study at the time as well. It was recommended I should do the Master of Laws program at the University of Melbourne, majoring in sports law. And and through that, you know, I could I could supplement the experience, lack of experience I might have had day to day, with some really great theoretical experience and an opportunity to converse with you know like-minded people and, and learn from some some real industry leaders and so then the next part for me was to try and work out well where would I really love to work and I knew of a, a firm in Melbourne um, still existing um, called Lander and Rogers and they had a sports law practice there was a group of you know three four five people that were basically acting as sports lawyers full-time and so I ended up going along to a presentation um, that the then partner at the time who was in charge of that group, Ian Fulliger, was giving at, at, a, at, a local, um, at a local office. So I, I went along and it was really, you know, principally with the aim to try and meet Ian. I obviously wanted to hear what he'd have to say about the topic he was presenting on, but I wanted to create a connection and to understand more from him about life, at, uh, being a sports lawyer and life at Landers. So as you're sort of saying in terms of this sliding door moment, I, um, I, I went along the session and the session had finished um, and so I wanted to go up and, and, and meet Ian. So I thought, well, what I'll do is I'll time my run to get in the lift the same time as him and then I can actually, you know, do the elevator pitch about myself. I've got 30 seconds, shake his hand and maybe get a business card and go from there. That was all going well. I was in the lift. He came in. We said hello and then he realized that I think he forgot the bottle of wine that he'd been given as a presenter. So he left the lift. 
And so here I am sitting in the lift thinking, what do I do now? I've come all this way from Geelong, <laughs> met this guy in the lift, um, and he stepped out. So I sort of thought, well, I can either just, you know, leave and not do what I wanted to come and do, or I'll just, I thought, I just have to wait. And if someone else comes, I'll probably have to just get out and then try and catch the same lift with him. Fortunately, it wasn't too long later in 30 seconds. No one else got in the lift, so it wasn't this awkward thing. That, And um, and then in my mind, I'm thinking, is he going to realize I've been standing here for 30 seconds with my arm out holding the door? <laughs> so anyway, he gives me his business card, and from there, you know, an opportunity grew, and I ended up going to Landers. And, and I spent, you know, six years at that firm and had a wonderful opportunity to, you know, work in, in, in sports law and, and work for a range of clients across a range of matters. And I think I remember a couple of years in, I I spoke to Ian about the fact that, you know, look, I'd gone to this thing and I wanted to meet him. Did he remember, well, A, did he remember it as, as much as I did because it had such a big impact on my career and uh, I don't think that he re- really fully did remember it, but he certainly didn't remember that I'd stayed there for an extra 30 or 40 seconds um, to hold the lift open. So I think maybe the lesson out of that for people out there is, you know, take these opportunities because you're never quite sure when they're going to, when they're going to come about um and more often than not it's it's you you know you overthink it more than the person who's on the the other side so that's probably the main lesson out of that too i i love the intent that you showed there (laughs) like that and the persistence yeah the persistence to to go to that session and and try and meet him and even just the fact that you're willing to stay in the lift with him is is very gutsy so i think that's a that's a lesson for for anyone out there who wants to meet uh, someone who, who they want to get to know and, you know, learn something from, persistence is everything. And, and to be honest, you know, and, and part of it is people were so amazing with their time with me and, and so you sort of do want to pay it forward a little bit. Um, everyone I've ever gone to um, in terms of trying to, A, meet myself or then now introduce them to, to someone else, has been extremely open to do that and has been extremely generous with their time. And, you know, this, the industry, the sports industry, um, it can be hard to break into. And, and to be honest, it, it a lot of it comes from relationships and connections and people you know. So the main thing is people just need to get out there and if, if you think someone's a good operator or you'd like to meet them, ask them to have a coffee. I'm sure more often than not, um, people will be more than happy to make the time to, to catch up and and help help everyone out. It's music to our ears, Garth. That that comment right there, I think that'll be used. <laughs> uh, a bit of content coming out this week, but um, it's a good segue into. I was just going to say, just quickly, do you, Garth, do you remember some of the points from your elevator pitch? Well, I think it was just um, the the thing I understood quickly. I'd obviously under, I'd obviously gone out and. Um, worked out who was who in the zoo, right? Who were the key players in the industry and the, and the market? And Ian was someone who had started the Australian New Zealand Sports Law Association back in the early 90s. He was one of the founding members. He'd sort of really established it as a recognised sort of profession within within the law. So, um, And I knew he was a part of the first ever sports law master's program at the University of Melbourne back in 1989 or something like that. I'm probably giving away his age now. He'd hate that. But, I mean... That that was the common connection we had that, you know, I was now studying something that he'd done 25 years earlier. And so for me, that was a really easy way to sort of say, look, you know, here I am. I'm this young guy just starting out on my journey. Um, obviously know that you're a really established figure and, and presence in, in the industry. Um, I'm sort of going through the same program you did 25 years later. Um, 
I'd love to understand more about how you got to where you got to and I'd love to learn more about the, the work that you're doing now and, and you know, I'd obviously if there was ever an opportunity, love to, to be a part of it. That's awesome. I think forming that relevant connection with no matter who you're talking to in, in whatever way you can is really important just to kind of get that initial buy-in so that they can, you know, hear you out for what you've got to say. And also, Ruse, again, it's like obviously you had, a, you had a reason as to why you wanted to get to know him and, and why you wanted to, to talk to him, you know, like and that in itself will assist you when you are wanting to, to meet someone who, who you want to learn from. You know, you, you basically uh, you had an outline reason why you wanted to and you, you just went and chased it. Yeah. And it was sort of like as well it seemed attainable. And I wouldn't say people to like limit your ambition or anything, but equally if someone wakes up tomorrow and thinks, I want to work at the AFL, well, maybe it's not the starting point is trying to email the CEO. I mean, trying to be realistic about it, yeah. an entry point as well and trying to be strategic in terms of understanding, you know, who's who and, and where, where your interests lie, where your skill set lies and try and marry it up with the, the right person. Mm. That's a very good point because we're both trying to reach out to, uh, for myself, it's a head of fan experience at the New York Yankees and for, for Ryan, it's the head of commercial at Manchester City and we're, we're gradually climbing the ladder of connections to, to reach our dream guests to get them on the podcast. <laughs> I can help Ryan out, I think, with uh, uh, the city. Yeah. I've already Ooh. tried with the, I've already tried with the baseball. Let's see what yeah. That's what I like to hear. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> obviously making inroads, but, uh, yeah, <laughs> I'll certainly take that offline with you, Ruben. You can, you can get out of here. <laughs> so put yourself in, in the shoes of a student right now who, who's looking to get um, industry experience, but obviously – with the situation that we're in, um, most opportunities are, are sort of closing down around them. What would you do uh, to continue um, moving your career forward? Yeah, it's a, it's a really interesting question and it's a, a really difficult time for a, a lot of people. Um, and I suppose my answer's probably got a lens on it where it's thinking about, you know, lawyers out there that want to become sports lawyers um, more than other functions within the, the sports industry. But I suppose for those people out there that, you know, want to get into sports law, the, the main thing I'd be saying is, and something that was drilled into me early on, you know, start to just write about topics from a legal perspective, like write journal articles, try to get published, um, think about issues that are happening and even using the current environment and current context in terms of COVID. You know, what, what are sports bodies doing to respond to this situation? How are they dealing with it? Um, because through that, you obviously get a great understanding of what's going on, like, you know, what are the topical issues of the day. But equally, if you do get some of these things published, whether it's in, you know, an actual journal or if it's just online through your own LinkedIn, people will read it and they'll start to see it and, and you know, and you can create connections connections from there. So if there's an area of interest um, that people have, they should, you know, I'd say if they have the time, and I know um, that that's always easier said than done, but get out there and, and, you know, learn about different topics but create an, a niche area and, and write about it is what I'd say. Garth, we encourage students and grads to, uh, to set goals with their work experience to be able to showcase outstanding results to future employees, um, employers. What have been some of the most outstanding work experiences that you've had in your career so far? Um, yeah, it's, it's an interesting one. I mean, we, we had to... Um, I never really through the law degree had to do a, a work placement or I did, but I did it through the full-time job I was at. So I never really had this sort of one-off um, 
moment where I went and worked for a firm and, and did like a seasonal clerkship or anything like that. Um, I got my practical experience um, through the full-time job that I had. Um, so I think in terms of the different opportunities I had through that process though and, and over time um, and just any outstanding work experience, I've always taken the view to be, you know, trying to be open about new areas and, and learn as much as I can. Um, and I just wanted to, through, particularly as a, as a junior lawyer, come out with a, a really generalist approach to, to how I looked at the law. Um, I didn't want to get pigeonholed too early in relation to just being um, a property lawyer and just dealing with leases. You know, and nothing against property lawyers dealing with leases. That's fine. Um, but for me, I wanted to be able to understand, you know, if a sports organization had a lease, you know, what, how would they deal with that? If they had a litigation problem, you know, if there's some piece of litigation that was happening, if there's a question on insurance, if there was a commercial question around their constitution. So I suppose I, I kept my options open and I put my hand up to really try and do anything. Um, and from there, I had some, some phenomenal opportunities to get involved in, in things like, you know, cases with the Court of Arbitration for Sport, whether it related to selection appeals for different editions of the Olympic Games, um, for different members of Australian teams. Um, I worked on a case that sort of came out of nowhere in relation to acting for two F1 drivers before a, the Grand Prix in Melbourne in 2015. Um, yeah, two Sauber F1 drivers. So I uh, did some really quite uh, rewarding work through the um, the Royal Commission into institutional responses to child sexual abuse. So I think I came through um, my time at Landers and I'd, I'd had this opportunity to do a whole raft of things. And the thing was it was all, you know, relevant and related to the sports industry. They were the ones, the client that we were servicing. But the type of work we did was really quite broad. So I mean, I don't have anything, one thing that I'd say that's the most amazing thing I've ever done, but I would say, you know, put your hand up to, to do as much as you can. There were times where something would happen and I'd think, okay, um, maybe I can write an article about this and that turns into the next day coming out in, in the age as an opinion piece or I'd get called up randomly and go down and get asked to do some sort of cross on ABC News or News Breakfast, um, things like that. And, you know, walking to the studio the next morning, you're sitting there thinking, why would I just have agreed to go on live television? You know, I'm, I'm, I'm not up to doing this, but you just have to do it, right? You just have to jump off the cliff and, and every time you do something like that, your experience grows, you, you hopefully your confidence grows and, um, and you're better for it. Absolutely. And for those students out there who are looking to create outstanding experience and add it to their resume, we've got a little free download on our website, the SportsGrad website, if you want to look it up, uh, which leads you through how you can go about making the most of your work experiences. I think that was a really good point, Garth, you just made about taking that leap off the cliff. You know, you're not going to learn, uh, you know, going through sort of easy little steps to, to get where you want to get to. And sometimes there's no, you don't really have a choice. You, ha- you have to just take the leap and you just have to have in your mind, well, what's the alternative? And the alternative is turning something down that you're going to learn from. Like what? That's not really an option. So, yeah, I like that. Um, I like the idea of taking that leap, and you can only learn from that. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I used to have this quote from Wayne Gretzky's junior coach on my wall growing up, and it was, "You miss a hundred percent of the shots you never take." And I just think, you know, you have to put yourself out there. You have to be in the arena because um, you just can't think of the alternative. We've heard about the the interview process at organisations like the AFL. 
Chicago Bulls, uh, North Melbourne and uh, the Cincinnati Bengals over the last few weeks. And we're just wondering, what is the interview process like at the ISA? Yeah, um, I, th- I mean, I've had a chance to, to listen to some of those um, podcasts and I'd say it's it's very similar. Uh, it's interesting. I, I was, for this role, I, I mean, it was advertised um, on the ISA website, but also it came up as a post on LinkedIn from the ISA. And I remember sitting... Um, sitting up in Brisbane at the time at a conference uh, with the sports commission that they were running and this um, this LinkedIn post came up about this IOC role and I thought, well, you know what, like I'd always had these ambitions to, to try and um, to work abroad and, and obviously the, the Olympics and then growing up, Sydney 2000, some of the moments from that still greatest highlights in, in terms of um, in terms of sport. So I thought, well, you know, talking about what we are talking about earlier, or thinking back to what we are talking about earlier, I suppose, I'll just put my CV in and see what happens. And for me, I would have been pretty wrapped to, to get a response back from someone with a, an ISC email and, you know, with an ISC email footer and just saying thanks for your application. Um, so from there, it sort of uh, it didn't quite hear back straight away. It took a couple of weeks and then I got this email out of the blue to say, look, um, we want you to do a, a first-round interview um, on Skype. Um, and so I think the time difference meant it was like 7 p.m. at night, um, which was early morning here or start of the start of the business day here. Um, so that was easy enough to, to work through in terms of work and just getting home early to make sure I could get myself organized to do a 35, 40-minute Skype interview. Um, and I'd, I'd obviously prepared. I'd obviously gone through my experience. I'd gone through the job description Um I was trying to understand all the, the latest things that were happening in terms of the IOC as an organisation. Um, and the interview was, it was it felt like it went very quickly. It would have been 35 minutes maybe at tops. Um, and it was, I didn't have a great chance within that first sort of interview to ask too many questions. I mean, I had a full list and my dad will always say, like, you've got to make sure you're asking questions and we're trying to work out what the right things to ask were. Um, but I didn't get a great chance. It was sort of, obviously it was a pretty big screening process where they just would have filtered through a range of different candidates and just to get an understanding of, you know, how they respond to different questions under pressure and what their general experience is like. Um, and then from there I sort of walked out and went and spoke to my wife and didn't quite know how it went. I mean, I didn't think I did a, a bad turn of myself, but equally like I didn't walk away thinking, you know, I've, I've nailed that either. So um, then a little bit of time, maybe a week later, um, I get an email. And I remember because it was after um, our wedding anniversary because we were just going out for dinner and we we're driving home. And I got an email from the IOC and it said, um, "We'd like you to come to Switzerland for a for an interview. Um, let us know um, this is the dates we we want you to come across. Um, we'll be in touch to to um, organise flights and everything." So here I am. I think, okay, this has got a lot more serious pretty quickly, right? So. Um, so then from there, I suppose I, um, it was, it was just after Christmas because I remember I had to basically try and I had to take a week off work because I was in Switzerland for a day and a half, but I basically had to be here for the Wednesday and I left on the Monday morning or something and got back on the Friday. Um, and so that was, the timing was actually quite good because I I just sort of said, you know, to work, look, I'm, um, I'm just taking an extra week's leave over Christmas or whatever and going away. Having the phone completely off because I didn't want to have an international <laughs> dial tone for them to know I was abroad and walking through the airport with a hoodie on so I didn't get caught. But, um, but I think that was a really, 
uh, obviously it was a, by the time you, they brought you across here and I, you know it took 24 hours that thing to get here um it was a not a full day but it was a pretty you know a series of meetings with different people and an opportunity to to meet the the broader team the legal team that i'll be working with so th- that for me was a a really valuable opportunity to um it's pretty significant expense for the organization right but a, a really valuable opportunity for me to come across to a i think i'd been to switzerland once before i'd driven through it um but i i certainly hadn't been to lausanne before um so to come across and, albeit very briefly, see the city that potentially if you were successful in this role you were going to move to was really quite something. Um, and I really rated that opportunity to, to do that. Um, and so, yeah, sort of the, the, the next round, obviously coming here in person, it was um, much more involved um, and then a lot more opportunity for me to, to talk to, you know, ask the questions I didn't get to ask earlier on, but equally um, to, to spend time with um with the team away from management, so the, the team at my level, my peers, and really we had a good opportunity to ask different questions. A lot of people, you know, this is a pretty diverse organisation and we've got people in my in my team, particularly from all around the world, you know, we've got people from the UK, from Canada, from Scotland, from Ireland, from India, from from Australia, so uh, from Belgium. So everyone's in a pretty similar boat, right? Not many people, um, not many people have come from Lausanne and, and they're working here. So it's a very international mix i think tms which is the commercial arm of the ioc i think there's more than 60 staff but i think there's 24 nationalities and something like 18 languages spoken so um yeah to, to, to come across and get to ask people questions i thought was really i, I really rated that opportunity um then yeah, from there i think it's by the time to, I, I think by the time you get to the pointy end of the process i think the it's assumed that you've got the skill set. I think, you know, you've got the demonstrated experience and capability to do the job. It, it really does get down to that sort of cultural fit and that ability to, to get along with your potential co-workers and, and show that you'd be able to work in a, in a team environment and, and be collaborative. So, um, yeah, I had, a re- I had a really good feeling, connection with all the people that I'd met and enjoyed the process. And at the end of it was, you know, obviously really fortunate and lucky enough to, to get an opportunity to get an offer. So there you go. We heard a couple of weeks ago about how Michael Wolfert from the Cincinnati Bengals uh, flew himself out to Cincinnati for a day. I believe he had to pay for his own flights. And part of his interview was being shown around the stadium by the team that he would be working with. This is what you've just shared with us is is on an entirely another level, getting flown from Australia to Switzerland to spend a week over there, meeting the team, hanging out. Well, it, was a week, it was a week to get there and back. I spent probably 24 <laughs> hours on the ground in Switzerland, but, yeah, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, we, we just love hearing about some of the lengths that organisations are going to to make sure that, um, you know, candidates are a really good cultural fit. Can you tell us a bit about uh, what Lausanne is like? It's a bit of a international sporting hub. I think you mentioned to me previously that there's 40 international bodies there. Yeah, I, I, yeah, exactly. It's um, it's been the home of the uh, IOC since 1915. So um, d- during the war years, it, it moved from France, and it's basically found its home in Lausanne. So Lausanne's known as the Olympic capital. Um, and, and I suppose because of that, there's been a lot of international federations who have who have set up shop here. Um, the Lausanne sort of city of Lausanne and Canton de Vaux have sort of created this sports hub, um, which uh, is a set of buildings just down the road from us where a lot of um, organizations get an opportunity to 
to, to set up shop. Um, and then some of the bigger federations like equestrian, swimming, uh, volleyball, um, they've got their own sort of bases around, around Lausanne. Um, I mean, the Court of Arbitration for Sport, um, which is effectively the World Court for Sport, is based in Lausanne as well. Um, and then in terms of, I suppose, the other biggest federation around FIFA, um, they're just on a couple of hours train ride in, in Zurich. So, yeah, Switzerland um, has become obviously quite a hub for, for international sport um, for, for a long period of time. Why, why do you think Switzerland is the home, home of all those organisations? Like, I, I know you mentioned, obviously, you've been there since, you know, the war and obviously it moved from France, but... Like, why is Switzerland the hub for these? Yeah, I suppose it gets back to that, uh, the fact that they're neutral, um, that there's an element of that. But I, I think as well, it's probably a pretty significant investment. I'm not sure of exactly the details, but there's probably um, some tax incentives to, to, to ensure that they're, they're based here. Um, and that obviously helps um, a town like Lausanne because it will bring in, um, you know, a lot of, tourists a lot of people that um will come in to for meetings and spend money in in lausanne on food and and hotels and everything because there's sports organizations based here so it, it really kicks the economy along yeah what does uh the life of a commercial council at the ioc look like on a day-to-day and what are what are some of your primary focuses and, and projects that you work on yeah so the the legal team um in the IC, it's sort of split into two. We've got the commercial arm of the business, which looks at um, sort of supporting uh, our top partner program, so our sponsorship side of the business, but also our our broadcast side of the business. Um, and then there's the institutional side. So the, uh, there's a, a big team that are dealing with, you know, just the general day-to-day contracts of the organisation. Um, maybe they're looking at privacy data-related questions, all the institutional governance things, the running of the sessions and the, the executive meetings and all those sorts of things. So um, I'm on the commercial side and sit within the marketing team. So um, we look after or I help support um, the, the business and the commercial teams around sort of negotiating uh, and then giving effect to our sponsorship agreement. So we've got these 13 global partners, um, the top the top program, um, and, you know, world-leading brands like, you know, Visa, Intel, Coca-Cola, Alibaba, Procter & Gamble. So um, day-to-day it's about sort of supporting their ambitions and, and creating co-creating sort of content and activating um, to, you know, for them to come together with us and, and create some amazing campaigns to support the, I suppose, the broader aims of the movement, which is um, to pursue peace through through sport. So, I mean, day-to-day... Um, we're working not only with um, with our sponsors at a at an international level, but we're also working with a lot of our organising committees. So we we have, um, you know, obviously Tokyo twenty twenty, which has been postponed, but it'll be delivered in twenty twenty one. We've got Beijing twenty twenty two for Winter Olympic Games. We've got Paris twenty twenty four for summer. We've got Milano Cortina twenty twenty six for winter. We've got LA twenty twenty eight for summer. So we help all those um, all those OCOGs. We call them. OCOGs, organising committees, we help them establish their own domestic marketing programs in their own territories as well. So we, we have a, a, a bit of an oversight role within that process just to make sure that what they're selling at a domestic level isn't going to conflict with anything we're doing at a, at a top level. So, um, 
you know, day to day, you can, I was just talking to a colleague this morning, you can walk in and you can have a plan and say, I'm going to do X, Y, and Z, but invariably, you know, you get pushed, pulled in all directions from commercial teams, from the business integration teams, from our rights activation teams, the digital teams to, to try and answer questions and, and help out and find solutions. You mentioned your meetings this morning as well with uh, the OCOGs of uh, Tokyo and then later today, LA. Sounds like there's there's plenty happening in all different time zones around the world that they require yeah. your help with. Yeah, it's a, it's a really, I mean, that's the most exciting part of the role because each of the organizing committees, obviously different locations, um, different cultures, different ways to go about business, um, different approaches to different things. So, you know, if you can start your day talking to, to Tokyo and end it with talking to LA, it's, um, yeah, it makes it exciting. And it's what's fascinating to me coming in is you talk about LA 2028, um, which is what, sort of eight years away. Um, and we're already, you know, it's full steam and working closely with mm-hmm. them. So it's such a, a significant event that takes so many years of planning. Um, it's phenomenal to sort of think about when you get here, see it all, see it all happen because, I suppose previously I'd just sort of turn on the TV for two or three weeks every four, every two years and see a different edition of the games and just think, wow, that was phenomenal, but not fully comprehend and understand, you know, the, the, the amount of work that's gone into to get the event to that point. Yeah, it'd be – it's an interesting idea of like because you're, you're constantly working with events that are, are in the future. Like it's kind of like you don't have one set – um, goal you're working towards because there's just one on the horizon and they just keep sort of coming. So it's a, it sounds really interesting. Yeah. And they're all they're all running there. Yeah, and they're all sort of I suppose broadly trying to run a similar race. I mean they're trying they're not trying to reinvent the wheel, wheel right? It's a, it's a similar event every every two years or every four years. But they all have their own styles and their own approaches to different things, and and they're all running to their own timetable. So. It's just interesting to see that, you know, what we're dealing with Tokyo now or for for Paris now, LA will get to in a couple of years. It's just all, yeah. they're all at different stages. The Tokyo 2020 Olympics has obviously been delayed a year. Can you explain a bit how the commercial program works at the IOC in terms of the cycles that the brands sign up for and, and how that's impacted your work with the, the with the delay of one year? Yeah, so we, we have um, uh, what's called a TOP program. So it's an acronym that stands for the Olympic Partners, um, and it's been in existence since uh, after Los Angeles, 84. Uh, and so we basically deal in four-year cycles, um, which is that, that four-year cycle will include an addition, one winter edition of the Games and one, one summer edition. So, um, you know, generally our partners will come on board for, you know, one or two sort of cycles, and um, the thing that, sort of throws out Tokyo a little bit is that it's moving into a different what we'd call quad. Um, so it's going from being in top nine to now being delivered in top ten. So, um, yeah, we're just we're just working with all the, the different stakeholders to, to put all the different parts of the puzzle together to, to make it work um, and just support, um, you know, Tokyo as much as we can to make sure that the games, when they ultimately are delivered in 2021, they're, they're a success. This would have been your first Summer Olympic Games working at the IOC. Um, you know, the reason you work in sport is because it kind of gives you those special moments uh, that you don't get in other industries. And I'm sure you would have been really looking forward to um, to the Olympics this year. On a on a personal level and perhaps some of the other feeling around around the building, what, what was it kind of like when you had to make the call to push it back a year? Yeah, yeah. Um... 
it's an interesting one because I, I joined literally the week after Pyeongchang. Um, so I'd come into the organization just as they delivered uh, a really fantastic event there. And, um, you know, you, you've worked so hard towards a goal and then it's sort of, you know, and obviously athletes are the ones who are suffering more than anyone because, um, and it's pushed back a year. I, I think, you know, it got to a point where it made sense and needed to happen. Um, and the benefit, you know, is that the event happens and it's not lost altogether. So I think it was just from my perspective and I suppose you just, the, the goalposts have reset and you've just got a new date to deliver and you just get get on with it. Um, yeah, and hopefully in, you know, 12 months' time I'll get a chance to, to see some, some events. But I, the other thing as well is that there's so much happening across the movement day to day outside the games anyway that there's enough to, to keep you excited and interested. Uh, and obviously it's, it's building towards a crescendo, right? Like this extra year is going to make it even more, there's much more anticipation in terms of um, the delivery. But we're a big focus of what we're, you know, what the organization is looking at at the moment is in, in relation to digital and trying to make sure that there's engagement. And even through the Olympic channel, the work that's being done, there's engagement between what we call flame down to flame up. So that intervening period between, you know, when the flame goes down for one edition to the flame coming on online for the next edition, that two year window. Um, how can you keep fans excited about about the product and about the event and about what the movement does and what its values are, and how can you continue to establish connections with with fans and and continue to promote you know the the wonderful endeavors of all the um all the athletes out there in terms of their performance and participation. So that that keeps it exciting, even if uh, even if at the moment we would have been I think in week two of of Tokyo if it was originally happening on its um, proposed date. The 2028 Olympics, obviously due to be held in in LA, and that's already a major focus for you. What sort of dealings go on with a local organising committee eight years out from competition? Yeah, I think a lot of what we're trying to do is um is focused on reducing the cost and complexity of hosting an Olympic Games. So um, there's been this document that's been um, you know shared publicly called the New Norm, um, which is about trying to find ways to create efficiencies and and a lot of that is relying on you know existing infrastructure or temporary overlays rather than going out and building things from scratch type things so um it, it's it is a long cycle but as i said before there's so much to do i think people talk about the, the hosting the games is like hosting you know 28 world championships all in the one city effectively at the one time yeah. um and so you've got obviously venues capacity you've got to transport people around including athletes and, and things like that so um you've got to make sure that athletes have places to, to to stay in while they're while they're there so a lot of stuff does happen quite far out um there there is a really you know solid blueprint in place in terms of the the schedules and the milestones about where you need to be um and yeah we're just here to to try and support them and to allow them to do the best that they can do and to give the greatest expression of the city of la in in 2028 and just to follow up from that so do you reckon most of your work is focused on those long-term gains because sort of like the closer they are to being delivered the the work's kind of being done so you're sort of focusing on the long term more than the short term i think it's a bit of both I, i get the point um I think obviously there's a lot of at the start there's building blocks in terms of allowing the uh, creating a framework 
for a com- yeah. from a commercial. I'm talking about from a commercial perspective here. Yeah. Um, to allow a marketing program to happen because you're right. You know, any sporting organization anywhere in the world that they're going to want to sign a, a a partnership for as as long as possible, right? For that for that journey. Mm-hmm. Um, so in terms of the commercial sort of sales, they would have hoped to have done you know their bigger deals and their longer term deals at the start, and then just be really focused on storytelling and delivery. Um, and as you get closer to the to the event, and it gets into that sort of more operational mode, I think it it seems to to change to just be focused on delivery of assets on the ground. So you know how how's the hospitality program going to work? How's transport set up for, for partners yeah. and things like that? So, but I suppose as well because there's so many OCOGs online, you're dealing with the long term and the short term. You know hour to hour, if it, so to speak. So you might have a meeting where you're yeah. looking at something from the perspective of a game six months out compared to the next hour you're in, they're thinking about four years out to eight years out. So yeah. you've got to get, when you go into a meeting, you've got to get your head right as to what you're thinking about, what you're tr- trying to achieve. Yeah. That'd be that'd be really tough, sort of how you, yeah, you're dead right. It's not all on the same timeline. You've got to, you've got to reset and think where are we, where are we at in the timeline, I suppose. It's interesting, like with yeah. games so far out. Like, how soon to do, do you bring on sponsors? You know, like what what does that time frame look like? It'd be so interesting. Yeah, and I think they all might have a different approach. Like, different markets might respond differently. Um, you know how a how a sort of national business in the territory of the United States um, or an international business might want to do things, and and how traditionally the sports market works in one jurisdiction might be completely different from another. So that, that's the that, for me that's the interesting part, right? There's there's so many um, I suppose cultural differences between between all of them, um, but they're all delivering the same same event. That's the that's the glory of it. Yeah. But it's just done in their own sort of way. Couple of last questions for you, Garth. One is from one of our listeners, Nathan, who wants to know what's been the most proudest moment of your career to date. Career, so it's not. My life. So, if it was life, I'd have to talk about my 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 marriage and my uh, my wife. <laughs> that career. Um, oh, look, I think you know. Obviously, getting the role here um, has been something I've been really proud of, and and something I continue to enjoy and um, every day, and and certainly don't take it for granted um, in terms of working hard and making sure I'm delivering. But. Um, I suppose if, if I look back, it's it's those milestones, right? It's you know finally finishing your law degree, finishing your masters um, in sports law. You know, getting a job at Landers was a, a big thing for me. Um, getting my first job was a big thing to start it all off, uh, and then you know getting getting the gig here. Um, you know, they're the four or five things if you want to pick out as the highlights. But I can't look back and say there's there's one. Yeah. And then just further to that, some of the most memorable moments that you've had working in, in sport. Um, there's been quite a few. I think the, the work that I was really quite passionate about and really proud to be involved in back in, in Melbourne um, was some pro bono, pro bono work that um, I did at Lander and Rogers, which was looking after and supporting and helping the Kathy Freeman Foundation. Obviously, Catherine phenomenal athlete and person and I think her 400 win in Sydney is still the greatest sporting highlight that I've ever seen. Not that I was in the stadium, lucky enough to be in the stadium on the night, but, you know, I'm sure 
you know, glued to my TV like like most other Australians, and just thought that was a phenomenal, phenomenal performance to deliver on that sort of stage, right, with that much pressure. Um, and I suppose her her um, since since finishing up has thrown herself into the, the foundation, um, which is is looking to ensure that um, in, in four particular communities, remote Indigenous communities, um, there's a, a focus on education. Um, so it's certainly that works really powerful. I just think the the inroads have made to through Catherine's work and profile to to have a real meaningful impact on on a really serious issue in Australia has just been something to be phenomenal and to have just played a you know a tiny tiny a role in that. Um, yeah, that that was something that was very rewarding and something that I'll um, I continue to cherish and, and look back on and certainly follow that the work that they do to this day. You know, very proud of of what they do and. I think it's um it's quite amazing. So people out there, go and look up the Kathy Freeman Foundation because they're doing incredible work. Definitely. We might wrap it up there, Garth. Thank you so much for giving us your time tonight. It's been extremely interesting for both Ryan and myself to hear about your journey from the um, tiny town of Balinga to all the way to uh, Lazern. I think I've mispronounced both of those. <laughs> like, yeah. uh, Aliang, mate. Aliang and Lazan. But look, and Lazan, a, a for effort, just the execution wasn't quite there. Balinga <laughs> a spot. <laughs> we will look that up. We will now. look that up. Regardless, um, it's it's been awesome having you on tonight. We've we've learned heaps about you know what's involved at the Olympic level. It's obviously such a a dream for a lot of people to to reach the um the organisation you're currently in, and I think it's really kind of humbling to see as well. Just add a bit of comment to what you said about your um your proudest moments along the way to see how they're so intrinsically motivated and how you feel so um you know proud of the proud to be recognised for the work that you've done and, and to see that it's led you to the point that you are now, I think is a real credit to yourself because I think it's quite easy to get sucked into the trap of the the glitz and glamour of sport and to follow that. But to see that you're just continuously putting in the hard works and, and you know, seeing yourself get recognised for that now and being able to live the life that you, you are in over in Switzerland is um, absolutely fantastic. So thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you for having me. Terrific. Thanks to everybody for listening in. I'll work on my pronunciations for future episodes. Uh, Just a reminder to subscribe, rate, and review, and we will see you next time. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the SportsGrad podcast. If you need help with your sports career, head to sportsgrad.com.au and download our free ebook today. And if you've enjoyed the episode, please give us a tag on socials at SportsGrad. 